to our study of this fascinating and yet challenging epistle to the Hebrews. We've now arrived at the very pinnacle of the author of Hebrews' argument to those listening in this little church. What's the pinnacle of his argument? What has he been building towards now for six full chapters? Here's the pinnacle of his argument. That Christ's priesthood is legitimate, it is historical, it is prophetic, and it is better than Aaron's. That's what he's been building towards this entire entire epistle. Now, that's probably hard for us to understand why that is so important for them. Why was that so important to the Jewish believers? And the tenacity with which these believers and professing believers clung to the law and to their understanding of the priesthood. Well, if you're not sure how important it was to them, if you're, if you're questioning how important it is, just remember that we're going to spend three chapters about how Christ's priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, all the way to chapter 10, verse 18. The author of Hebrews is going to detail to you and to me why it's so important that we get this. Now, let's remember that these Jewish Christians, there's some true believers, there's some professing believers to whom this letter is addressed, were tempted to abandon their Christian faith and return to Judaism. That's what's at the crux of this letter. Some had lost their property. Some had suffered severe persecution on account of their faith. They've been kicked out of the synagogues. They can no longer shop in the market. They are ostracized in their own community. And under this heavy persecution, some were attempted to abandon, to abandon their faith. But they really felt comfortable in the old system. That really felt comfortable to them. And they were familiar with all the requirements and all the rituals and all the traditions of the Levitical system. And that's not unlike today when somebody is in another system for a long period of time. If, for example, if you think of Islam, it's very difficult oftentimes to uh, have somebody recognize the difference in Christianity because they just feel so comfortable. They've had generations where they've lived and died without questioning any of their religious traditions. And these false religious views dominate their whole way of life. And when missionaries try to penetrate with the gospel, uh, they often face a lot of strong resistance because to accept the gospel would mean abandoning centuries of religious tradition. They have a hard time with that. It feels so comfortable to know what you're doing all the time without really even questioning it. And the author of Hebrews was trying to convince people that a religious system of sacrifices and rituals and rules that had been in place for over 14 years, 1,400 years, I should say, has now been replaced with something better. But they liked the old system. They were comfortable with it. But since their profession of faith, they now understand that Christ is better. So he spent a lot of time, hasn't he, trying to show how Christ is better. But he needs to help them get, understand why Christ is a better high priest. That's really at the pinnacle. That's what he's been He's been edging towards this entire time. And the way he's going to demonstrate this is by reintroducing us to a man that he's talked about just briefly before named Melchizedek. And the relationship between Christ and Melchizedek is significant. Now, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. What is a type? A type is an Old Testament character or person or event or object 
that is a picture of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Okay? They're called a type. And so the study of types in the Old Testament is called, here comes, typology. Okay? And that's what it's called. So you study things. Now, you can get carried away and make everything a type if you're not careful. And so you want to not do that. You don't want to stretch the text beyond that. But certain things are very obvious, and certain things the New Testament tells us was a picture of Christ. And we see lots of examples in the Old Testament. For example, the ark is a picture of the salvation of Jesus, you know, through Jesus Christ, right? Where it's God who closes the door, right? And, uh, and re- uh, saves them from destruction, right? Delivers them out of the tempest and, and lands them safely, right? We see Joshua leading God's people into the promised land is another type of Christ. Uh, John 3 tells us that the bronze serpent that they lifted up in the wilderness, remember when everybody looked at it and they were healed from the snake bites? John chapter 3 tells us that that was a picture of Christ, that all those who would you know, believe, put their faith in Christ, that would look up at the resurrected Christ, right? That they too would be saved. Now keep in mind, types are just a picture, Okay? So our faith is not in the picture of the Old Testament, but our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. The mere fact that the author of Hebrews chooses Melchizedek to show the superiority of Christ's high priestly role and authority speaks volumes. That means there's something about this picture that God wants us to be able to see through this picture of Melchizedek. He wants us to see this aspect, and he wants these Jewish believers and professing believers to see that as well. Only something very strong and a very convincing argument would be enough to move these former uh, practices of Judaism away from their deeply held beliefs about the Levitical priesthood. Now, why was the priesthood so important to those coming out of Judaism? Because the Jews inherently understood that God was unapproachable to us because of our sin. They had seen that in numerous examples of the Old Testament. They knew they could not just stroll into God's presence any way that they chose. That that was not allowable. Remember when Isaiah came into the presence of the Lord in a vision in Isaiah 6? Do you remember what he said? He said, the seraphim were all crying out what? Holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory, right? And do you remember what, uh, how Isaiah responded? He said, woe is me. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a, amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That was his response to coming into the presence of the Lord in a vision. Do you remember, uh, you know, they knew, I should say, they knew that they could not come into his presence on their own terms. They had been taught that throughout scriptures. The way that they would be able to come into the presence of the Lord was through a mediator. Somebody that God approved that said, you can represent mankind, who God says is allowed to come into his presence. They knew they needed that. Scripture had been very clear about that. But not just any mediator. You couldn't just decide that you were going to be the mediator. God had to say that you were 
the mediator. Do you remember when Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16? Do you remember what happened there? In Numbers chapter 16, the reason for the rebellion was that Korah and Dathan and Abiram thought that Moses and Aaron were assuming a role that anybody there could fulfill. And so uh, they, uh, Moses chastises them for their rebellious hearts for not realizing that God had set out in his own word who could assume the role of high priest. Who was allowed to do that? And it wasn't just anybody. Finally, the Lord steps up to execute judgment. And you know the judgment, of course, don't you? That God finally brought upon them. He opened up the earth and swallowed them all. Remember, he said, step away from those guys. Something bad's about to happen. And if you're with them, you can stay near, but I would recommend you move away. I'm paraphrasing. And those who didn't, remember, the whole earth swallowed them up. Do you remember what happened after that? We rarely talk about this. Some people were grumbling. Said, hey, that's, that's unfair. You can't do that. That's, you just killed that entire... Well, you remember what happened there? 14,700 of them were killed with a plague for grumbling. Anyway, the point of this is, is that God... You cannot just come into the presence of God any way that you choose. You need to have a mediator, and not just any mediator, but a mediator that God says is the right mediator. Do you remember when Israel had seen Moses go up on the mountain into the cloud and the lightning and the thunder and the trumpet sound? Do you remember all that? As they were terrified, and God said, if they get too close to the mountain, if they step one foot on this mountain when my presence is here, they will be wiped out. Do you remember that? You cannot just come into the presence of God any way that you choose. We forget that today because we think that we can just determine how God should respond to us. We just think that, you know, hey, I'll, I'll decide when I'll go to God. I'll decide how he should respond. And incidentally, if he doesn't respond the way I think he should respond as I stroll into his presence, I'm mad at God. I'm angry with God. Israel knew they could not just casually walk into the Holy of Holies to speak with God. Only the high priest could enter there, and only once a year, and only with blood on the Day of Atonement. One time, one time, one person that God approved, from the tribe that God approved, from the line that God approved, only in a specific way. Only wearing what God said he should wear. Only sacrificing what God said he should sacrifice. Only sacrificing it the way God said he should be sacrificed. And only performing the ritual in there that God said is the way to do it. And he had to confess his own sin before he even walked in to represent the sins of everyone else. He tied little bells around the bottom of his, of his robe there so they could tell he was still moving just in case he pretended, I guess, that he had confessed his sins and they could drag him back out of there. We need someone to go before us that God has said is acceptable in his sight. The Jews understood that. And in the New Testament, that role is assumed by the great high priest. And there's only one who's called the great high priest in all of Scripture, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ.
And just like there's only one who's called our great high priest, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that mediator is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. So the author of Hebrews is set out to demonstrate in the strongest, most convincing way possible that Jesus not only fulfills all the Levitical requirements of the high priest, he is much, much, much more than that. And that he is from the order of Melchizedek. In fact, the entire Old Testament was pointing to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. To view Christ as just another priest, or worse yet, as an illegitimate high priest, was a fatal error on their part. So to return to the Levitical priesthood would be to return to a system that was just a picture of what Christ actually fulfilled. It was a picture of just entering into the presence of God. They would be abandoning the preordained way that God said we can come into his presence forever. That's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They would be rejecting the one and only great high priest who not only redeems us for, from our sins through his atoning work on the cross, they would be doing that in favor of a mere picture of Christ's priestly work. And so the author is saying, you need to understand who Melchizedek is because he's, un he's essential for you to understand who Jesus Christ is and his role as our great high priest and that why he is superior to any other priest then or now or forever. Now, the author of Hebrews has been working to introduce this idea all the way through this epistle at this point in time. Remember in chapter 1, verse 3, he said he made purification for our sins. Then in chapter 2, verse 17, let's take a look at that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. I want you to see how he's been trying to weave this through, all pointing to chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 17, he said this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become what? A merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means to appease the wrath of God for the sins of people. Who did that? That's right, Christ did that. And what role is he doing when he fulfills that? Priestly role. Priestly role. Then look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And who could forget again in that wonderful passage in chapter 4, verse beginning in four, verse 14, where he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, but yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. <coughs> now look at chapter 5, verses 5, 
verses uh, 5 and 6 specifically. But in chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, he starts pointing out the difference between Christ's priesthood and Aaron's priesthood. He says in verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then we see that again in verse 10 of chapter 5, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then after that, after a long warning passage, right, talking to professing believers about the danger of falling away from their faith, he says, remember in chapter 6, he says here, he says, uh, you need one. There is one, I should say, there is one who's a front runner, who's the anchor of your souls. Do you remember that? Chapter 6, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of our soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Now he comes back to this idea of a priesthood again. Because within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become what? A high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So in fact, prior to this epistle to Hebrews, we really only know about Melchizedek from two different places. We know about him from Genesis 14, and we know him from Psalm 110, verse 4. That's it. So here now, beginning in chapter 7 of verse 1, we're introduced to some additional details about Melchizedek as we begin to see how and why Melchizedek is integral to understanding the high priesthood of Christ. So look at chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So the text tells us that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. We know from Psalm 76, verse 2, that Salem would later become Jerusalem. Not only was Melchizedek a king, but he was also a priest of the Most High God. In Israel, those two offices were separate and could never be together. You could not be a priest and a king. But evidently, under Canaanite law, because Melchizedek is not an Israelite, He's a Canaanite at this point in time, right, Melchizedek? He was a king and a priest. But this king is different, and this priest is different, because he's a priest of whom? The Most High God, El Elyon. This priest worshipped Yahweh, which means that he and Abraham are probably one of the few survivors of the true worshipers of God handed down from the time of the flood. And remember where he's at. He's right smack dab in the middle, if you will, of pagan country, all around him. So this priest worshiped Yahweh. Even more fascinating is that Melchizedek worshiped the one true God in a city that was sandwiched between Sodom, we all know about Sodom, Sodom on one side and the Canaanite child sacrificers on the other. So the first shared characteristic that we see between Melchizedek and Christ is that they're both kings and they're both priests. 
Now, to show that this is not some hypothetical story, he points to an actual event that occurred in history, and that's in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 24. Genesis 14, verses 17 to 24. Let's turn there, shall we? Then after his return from the defeat of Kerdolamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me, and you take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Anar, Eskal, Mamre, let them take their share. So Abram had gone after four kings, to give you a little background. Four kings who had taken his nephew Lot and his family captive when they raided Sodom, where Lot was living. And Abram defeated these kings, recovered all the goods, and then brought back Lot and his family. And as Abram is returning from the battle, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out to meet him, and he blesses Abraham. Abram, and Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils. Now, one thing that's easy to overlook is what happened when Melchizedek went to bring refreshment to Abram's men. Melchizedek brought out what? Bread and wine. Now, we can only see, or we can clearly see, I should say, a foreshadowing between Christ and his disciples in the Lord's Supper, but we should be careful not to stretch it beyond the text there. Okay? That's all it says that he brought out. He brought it out as a refreshment. Uh, some uh, Roman Catholic teachers have seen this as a reason why priests should dispense grace in communion. So it would be a view that we would strongly disagree with. Instead of a priest dispensing grace through bread and wine, what the text indi indicates is that we have a priest who's a picture of Christ's priestly ministry as the Son of God, based on his atoning work on the cross and his resurrection, foreshadowing the covenant of grace. I think to push it beyond that is beyond the text. So, But for some reason, the author of Hebrews leaves that out, and he moves beyond that, and he talks about something else. So go back to your text in Hebrews chapter 7. It says he returned him to the slaughter of the kings. Verse, uh, he says here also, I'm sorry, he says that he, he moves beyond that, uh, and he says that he blesses him. Now, why is that important? Well, first, it's important because God promised Abraham that he would bless him. Do you remember that? In the covenant, he said that he would bless him. And in the pagan culture around Abraham, he's probably not seen as a great man. But yet, here is a king in the midst of a pagan culture who's a non-Israelite who's actually blessing Abraham. And secondly, the blessing implies something, doesn't it? A blessing implies that he who is in greater authority 
blesses the lesser, not the other way around. And here you see Melchizedek offering a blessing to Abraham, or Abram at the time. The mere fact that Melchizedek, a non-Israelite king, blesses Abram himself, and you're thinking in your mind, is there anybody that's more revered than Abram? Is there any more, anybody that's more revered than Abraham in the Jewish faith? Well, you could say, well, there's Isaac and there's Jacob, and later there's Joshua and Moses and Aaron. They're all revered, but they all pale in comparison to Abraham, the father, the father of their nation. And yet here is Abraham, fresh from a victory, returning the captives of spoil, and yet it is Abraham who is blessed by Melchizedek. The point here is that even Abraham recognized the superiority of this king-priest over himself, this priest of the God Most High. So what have we learned so far about this connection between Melchizedek and Christ? First, Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Who else is a king? and a priest, Jesus. Melchizedek refreshed Abram after battle with bread and wine. That was a foreshadow of the new covenant with Jesus. Number three, Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, and since the greater always blesses the lesser, even Abraham recognized that Melchizedek was superior. That's important. Now let's move to verse two. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils, and was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So here again, we see that Abraham's not only blessed by Melchizedek to show that he's that the greater Melchizedek blessed the lesser Abraham, but Abraham also gives a tenth to Melchizedek. And we'll see how relevant that is in the next coming verses but also how important that is to Levi and the rest of the Levitical priests, because he's going to say the fact that Abraham offered a tie to Melchizedek is just as important for you, Abraham, as it is for your generations after him, including Levi, who is where the priests come from. But for now, I want you to recognize that this is just another demonstration of superiority that the author of Hebrews is pointing out. If Abraham had not recognized Melchizedek as a king-priest of the Most High God and superior to himself, he never would have offered a tithe to him. So we see that this priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to Abraham through the blessing and the tithe. So Melchizedek was a king and a priest, just like Jesus. He brought out bread and wine as a picture of a future covenant. He was blessed... Uh, Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek and provided tithes to him, knowing that he was superior. Now, the author moves to the meaning of his name. Now, his name, Melchizedek, comes from two words in Hebrew, Melech, which means king, and Sedech, which means righteous or righteousness. So, you put those together, he's the king of righteousness. Okay? He's also the king of Salem. That has its root word in Hebrew from the word <coughs> shalom. So he's the king of shalom, Melech Shalom, which means he's the king of peace. But notice here that he that the righteousness comes before the peace. I don't want you to miss that. Righteousness comes before the peace. Surrounded by a godless pagan culture, this king rules righteously, not only righteously, but righteously in such a way righteously that it brings about peace. 
So that order is significant. Righteousness comes before peace. A king cannot have true peace in his kingdom unless both he and his kingdom is righteous. That becomes important a little bit later on. Let's look at verse 3 quickly. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a peace, a priest perpetually. All priests from the tribe of Levi, as decreed of God, they all come from the tribe of Levi, which means no matter how badly you thought you deserved to be a priest or how badly you wanted to become one, if you were not from the tribe of Levi, so sorry, so sad, never will happen. But notice here that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, yet he was a priest of the Most High God. Now, some people have looked at that verse to mean that Melchizedek was an angel, or he was the pre-incarnate Christ, but the language of the text itself tells us that's not the case, that Melchizedek was an actual king, an actual priest from history who lived during the time of Abraham. Notice that it said he was made like the Son of God and that he remains a priest perpetually. What this means is that contrary to all the other significant characters in the book of Genesis, we don't have any record of Melchizedek's family lineage. You notice in Genesis, we know everything about every other main character, but not Melchizedek. There's no record of his father, or his mother, his wife, or children, although undoubtedly he probably had all the above. There's no record of his birth or no record of his death. But for the purposes of presenting a type of Christ, the Holy Spirit has omitted that from Scripture to demonstrate that he was a king and a priest without beginning or end. Who else is a king and a priest without beginning or end? Jesus. And so he keeps drawing these parallels. He keeps drawing these parallels together here. But you'd say, well, doesn't Scripture show the genealogy of Jesus? Oh, it does. It shows his human ancestry, doesn't it? It shows the man part of his ancestry, that he's from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. So to be our high priest forever, he needed to come from a different tribe than Levi, didn't he? Because those priests all lived and died, and then the next one took over. But Christ is like Melchizedek, which means his priesthood is forever. And that becomes very important as we dig a little deeper next week. Notice it says he is made like the Son of God, that's Melchizedek, and remains a priest forever. The Son of God is not made like him, but he is made like the Son of God. In other words, he's presented in Scripture just like the one who would fulfill and be our perpetual high priest forever. He's a picture of the one who would come later, and that one is Jesus. So what have we learned so far? Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. Who else is a king and a priest? Jesus. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, refreshing and strengthening him with bread and wine. Jesus strengthens and refreshes those who come to his throne of grace for help. Does he not? He also refreshes us as well. And Abraham paid a tithe and, uh, to Melchizedek as an acknowledgement of his superiority. And so we as believers are to acknowledge Jesus is the one who bought us with a price. I want to be able to start seeing some of these connections. Melchizedek was a king of righteousness, the meaning of his name, and king of peace. So Jesus is the one who is completely righteous and who gives us his peace. 
Finally, as Melchizedek appears in Scripture with no mention of his lineage or birth or death, so the risen Jesus has no beginning or end. Now, why is this important? Why do we need to know this? Why does he take three verses in this chapter to show to introduce us to this man, Melchizedek, who's only mentioned twice in Scripture? Well, first of all, let me just say this real quick. This is why we read all the verses of our Bible. Okay? Here's someone who's only mentioned two times in all of Scripture in the Old Testament. He's only mentioned three times. The third time is in the book of Hebrews, where it points back to him. So you look at here, we've got basically eight verses, get turned to 28 verses here in chapter 7 alone, all about Melchizedek. That should tell you not to skip over the parts in your Bible, that every word is from God. Dig deep. That's why we go verse by verse, sometimes word by word, because it's that important. And if we don't understand who Melchizedek is, we're going to miss how important that is for us in Christ's high priestly ministry. Why is it important that Melchizedek is a high priest forever? Because our eternal great high priest, Jesus Christ, can serve us as a merciful and faithful great high priest forever as well. Beloved, that thought would have brought great comfort to that persecuted little church in Hebrews. And that should bring you great comfort as well. To know that you have one who sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and advocating for you for how long? Forever. And he's a righteous. And he brings peace. We've demonstrated, had that demonstrated for us, a very clear picture of what's available for us here as believers today. That our great high priest, we can come to him in our time of need and find mercy and receive grace. Not just one time a year. Not just, not just in special times. But because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have a great high priest we can go to at any time. That veil has been torn from top to bottom. And that, beloved, should give you great comfort. Great comfort to know in your time of need. And several of you are in great times of need right now. And you're battling through things. Know that your great high priest, Jesus Christ, hears you, knows what you're going through, and is sovereign and still in control. That should bring you great comfort as a believer in Christ. I'm going to ask the men to come.